and welcome to Check It Out with EVPL, a podcast by your local library. I'm your host, Ellen. And I'm Lori. And today we're joined by Stacy. Hello. Stacy, you wanted to talk about folklore, correct? Yeah. Um, I'm a storyteller by nature, and we were kind of discussing last time, I think it was on the podcast here, I was talking about uh, some Norwegian folk tale collectors, Aberson and Moe, and they were contemporaries of the Brothers Grimm. Mm. And um, I kind of got to thinking, I talked to some of my coworkers, and I wanted to do, you know, a traditional uh, folk tale or fairy tale, as you will. And that's kind of how this came to be. I'm a huge fan of folk tales and fairy tales, so I'm excited to have you on here. Well, it was kind of interesting. About the time the Brothers Grimm's were doing their thing, and most people don't realize they only really went out into the countryside for a little bit. After a while, they really just had people coming to them to giving their stories and their collecting. But it got to be a thing where they were doing it to preserve German history and the oral tradition and that. And they were very proud of their thing. And so other countries started doing the same thing. You know, we got the guy over in France who gave us Cinderella. And we got some British people. But Eberson and Mo, the Norwegian collectors, have always been near and dear to my heart. And you know, it's the same traditional folklore and fairy tales you get, but with a lot more trolls involved in it. Uh, but today I actually wanted to do a uh, traditional Brothers Grimm one. And Disney has preserved so many of the mainstream ones. There's a lot of fairy tales and folklore out there that people just don't realize or don't understand or we've lost a lot in the translation of coming to you know the the disney era of fairy tales sure and i think that also a lot of people don't realize that the same stories are told through multiple different cultures so the story of cinderella there's a podcast that I listen to that's literally called 100 Cinderella's because it's 100 different stories of Cinderella from different cultures. Yeah. About, I don't know, a number of years back, they actually tried to classify um, oral tradition and folklore by giving each motif a number. So there would be, I forget what the number was for the Cinderella type of story. And then there's like the Beauty and the Beast type of story. And then they realized that there's so many subgroups and variation that they they just kind of give up on the numbering system. But if you study folklore at all, you will come across that numbering system again. I'm fascinated with the different variations on Little Red Riding Hood. My favorite is Little Golden Hood. It's called The True History of Little Golden Hood. It's like, yeah, you've heard about Red Riding Hood, but in Golden Hood, the mother, grandmother actually took a drop of sunbeam and sewed it into the hood. And that's why it was a fiery red, yellow, gold color. And then when the wolf tried to eat her, he burns the inside of his mouth out instead. You know, so, Interesting. Yeah. But I always thought that, you know, it's funny with the Brothers Grimm is when they collected from the oral tradition, these were stories passed down for generations told around the the hearth and home and you know we didn't have television or even radio back then and this was our entertainment that when they decided to write the stories down they actually cleaned them up and got rid of a lot of the sex (laughs) but because of the puritan work ethic of the time they put in a lot more violence 
That doesn't surprise me. So when Disney comes around and tries to clean out the violence out of the stories, it's just like, okay, the one thing about the oral tradition is when you're a storyteller, you never tell the same story twice the same way. And it grows. And that's why we have so many variants. Because storytellers would wander around and, you know, they might tell a story and then someone later is trying to remember the story. They don't remember it. So they add their own embellishments. Or what I do is when I read The Brothers Grum, I think it's sometimes the writing's very minimalistic. Mm-hmm. So when I'm doing it as storytelling, I try to explain or put in more background and flavor to the story. And so, you know, I'll take a two page story and, you know, which should be read in five minutes and it'll take me 15 minutes to get through it. Yeah. <laughs> but those. That does also make sense with the idea that this was people's entertainment. So even if you want to maybe hear about the same themes, you definitely want some variation in there so you're not hearing the same thing every time. Sure. And I'm sure that the stories were also uh, edited, for lack of a better word, to the audience as well. Um, If you're telling a story and you're in France, you're probably going to set the story in France, even if it wasn't originally. Right. I mean, I guess that's true of any performer is to know your audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the Brothers Grimm. I am also a big fan of Hans Christian Andersen. Although his fairy tales are a little bit different because they aren't really passed down. He wrote them to give morals. Technically, they're not considered fairy tales because the author is known. One of the criteria of being a fairy tale is it came from the oral tradition. So The Little Mermaid, although a wonderful story, is not technically a fairy tale. Hmm. Would it count as a fable then? Because I know fables are known for having a moral at the end. Yeah, if there's a specific and the moral is, then you're in the fable category. So yeah, Hans Christian Andersen would definitely lead that direction more. And I love The Little Mermaid and the Disney version's wonderful, but it really kiboshed the symbolism of it, Mm -hmm. you know, because here this, you know, creature gains a soul and, you know, gains humanity and it was just that coming of age and transition is beautiful and you just don't get that in the the cartoon version i feel that way about the princess and the pea a lot um you see it in cartoons or you hear it in kids books or whatever and a lot of times it's very much so like look at this princess she's so you know special that she can't sleep because of a pea under 20 mattresses when in the original story, it was a scathing criticism of royalty and the rich. There were a couple that the Brothers Grimm couldn't quite clean up. The Frog Princess was one. There's no moral absolute on that one because she breaks the spell not by kissing the frog, but by throwing it against the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, go back to the original source (laughs) material on that one. Oh, yeah. And the other one that uh, Brothers Grimm had problems with was Rapunzel. Because in one version, and this is printed by the Grimm's brothers, that the prince climbs up the tower and later the witch finds out because Rapunzel's pregnant. Mm -hmm. And so when the brothers Grimm wrote a, rewrote their book a few years later, they actually had the knight carry up a priest on his shoulders to marry them and then Rapunzel gets pregnant and goes on with the story from there and so they were kind of like oh wait we can't yeah (laughs) so yeah it's kind of fun you know like I say they were capturing the oral tradition and but editing it as they went along one of my favorite collectors from the time period is Andrew Lang who was um, British uh, but published mostly in America the colored fairy books Mm -hmm. by Dover Press 
house. I grew up with, my brother had a copy of the Blue Fairy book, which I stole from him. And then I found a copy of the Red Fairy book. And those two are my favorite. When I graduated college, I treated myself and bought all 11 books in the series. Oh. He's got the, the olive and the pink and the brown and, and there's different colors. Um, the library actually has one called the Rainbow where he takes the best of the other colored books and puts it in there. Nice. So, yeah. So Andrew Lang, again, his wife and a team of women did most of the translating for him and he wrote the introduction got the credit <laughs> of course yeah, yeah sounds about right but you know the brothers Grimm actually had you know most of the stories and the women coming to him were, were women not mm-hmm. you know that carried these traditions i think that makes sense because typically historically speaking women were in charge of the hearth and the home so they were the ones that were going to be home to tell those stories and also they were typically the social network of the community so if any stories were being passed around it would most likely be through the women. I heard an interesting theory that back in the day, you know, your life expectancy was so short and more so for women because you died in childbirth so much that so many of the stories were cautionary tales because it was the only way you could teach and train your child and they would remember it. So think Little Red Riding Hood again. I mean, the the epitome of the cautionary tale, don't talk to strangers. You know, and actually the original version had, and I say original with air quotes because, you know, the oral tradition, there is no one original version, but there's a lot more. He was a sexual predator, not Mm -hmm. just a wolf, but it was, there were layers to that story. And you tell a tale and the child will remember the story and hopefully they'll remember the message. But stuff like Bluebeard and Beauty and the Beast where, you know, you're going to be forced into a marriage and your husband might be beastly, but, you know, you can, you know, know, it was just a way of teaching young girls, you know, their expectations Mm -hmm. in life. And it was just interesting that so much of the fascination of reading fairy tales is really understanding the culture and the time period of the, the day. Isn't that also the case with um, a lot of fairy tales that do involve like actual fairies? There's the idea that you shouldn't be following them off or accepting any yeah. gifts from these creatures you don't know. Oh, yeah, they're sneaky. Because, yeah, once yeah, once yeah. you do, you'll never see your family again. And that's kind of like... Yeah. Yeah, don't eat their food. Don't give them your name. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like you think of like the changelings where a fairy comes and swaps your bot baby out for another. I heard someone like like with the autism and attention deficit and some of these problems, you know, we just put labels on the last couple decades that a young child can be perfectly normal and they get to a certain developmental age and then issues come up. And back in the day, like, well, my child got swapped out because, you know, my loving infant that I had, you know, before is, you know, throwing all these tantrums and everything. And so it was another way of explaining, you know, stuff that we only even recently medically have been figuring out. Sure. That leads into a lot of mythology, which is just explaining things that people didn't have the science to explain. Right. Beautiful book called Sweet Blood by Peter Houtman came out probably about 15, 20 years ago. It's a teen YA novel, and it was explaining the mythology of vampires by being an undiagnosed diabetic in an era that didn't have insulin. Because your um, gums would recede, so it looked like your teeth were fangy, your light sensitivity, you know, you had that pallor, and it was just, it, you know, the iron from blood would help with the, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like, yeah. Huh. It was interesting research he did on that book. Yeah, I have heard of vampirism specifically being the 
reasoning for yeah there's a quite a few medical issues that it could be yeah um and i think some of it too is just superstition that when you have to unbury a body for some reason or another and it looks a little bit too preserved it's natural to kind of panic about that yeah do you know if there was any connection between like vampirism and tuberculosis because i know that's another one that's known for the the very pale color the well, before very sensitive, and then the coughing up blood. Yeah, before Bram Stoker gave us Dracul, you know, and that and that. If you look at the older vampire mythoses, they weren't quite as cut and dried. And mm-hmm. what we're calling a vampire, oh, if it had anything to do with sucking blood from another culture, we would, you know, Westerners would put it in the vampire category, even if it was, you know, so it's like, I'm sure that vampirism got many, many different medical conditions, depending on where you're living and who's told telling the story yeah but again it was that traveling storyteller the minstrels the the tinkers the you know the the romani they they, they were traveling they they brought stories and traded and people don't realize the gift of the wanderers that Mm -hmm. gave us you know how cultures crossbred a beautiful um theory about the norwegian valkyries being from the same rootstock as the arabic you know virgins but also came back to the greek um vassal virgins Mm -hmm. and so but to see how the Valkyries played it out versus the other culture, but it, it's the same root story. But following the Greek mythology, washing through the Islamic, through the Germanic, and up to the Scandinavian, and how it changes on its trip. Yes. And I find it very fascinating, too, the difference between Russian folklore and the rest of every all the other types of folklore. Just because for a while, it seemed... And I could be incorrect about this, but it seemed like it was a um, more secluded area that they didn't necessarily have quite as many stories being traded back and forth. So their folklore tends to have a specific brand to it that you don't see very often in other places. Oh, I think, yeah, there are parts of Russia that were definitely more isolated Mm -hmm. and weren't on the trading routes. Yeah. Similarly, Japanese folklore is wildly different than pretty much anything else you're going to find. And I think, again, it's because it was very isolationist. But also you have cultures that borrow and share and other cultures that don't want to borrow and share. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, being an English tradition, we, you know, steal shamelessly from everybody. (laughs) uh, This does actually touch on something that I looked up, which is a very different angle of folklore, which is just cryptids. And kind of how those pass from one culture to another. It's very similar to how fairy tales like change and evolve. And there is so much stuff out there about Bigfoots. Oh my gosh. All varieties. And I love it. My mom is going to love this episode. (laughs) I I just came across it was a meme, but it was just beautiful. Um, My husband's really into Tolkien and Lord Mm -hmm. of the Rings. And they're talking about how unusual it was that outside of Hobbiton, only Bree knew of the Hobbits. And they're like, well, anyone going in the area would see these big, huge footprints because hobbits have big feet and they'd probably give that area wide berth well someone made the connection of bigfoot is really (laughs) really you know a group of hobbits living in an area and so you see these big huge footprints but they're really you know halflings and tiny people (laughs) sorry i Um, just came across that recently so i had to share it's cute Um, 
Yeah, here in America, we have Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Mm-hmm. In the Himalayas, that is the Yeti or yes. the Abominable Snowman. Also, uh, Mongolian people spread basically across all of Asia their myth of the Almas, which is a non-human ape or bipedal creature of some sort. And you see those, the monkey man of India. I really like Florida coming through with a crazy <laughs> one, which is the skunk ape. <laughs> And it's just no matter where you go, you find this weird kind of human, kind of not creature that is just really across all cultures. But but isn't it fascinating when, you know, the origin or the germation is something's weird, we're going to explain it. What becomes a fairy tale and folklore and what becomes, like you say, these cryptids of, you know, yes, the bottom of snowman is real or yes, Bigfoot's real, but there's no really good folklore stories about, you know, it's just that where do we diverge and why it goes to one category or the other? I think perhaps intention is maybe where it comes from. Like with fairy tales, you have a moral a lot of times, not always, but typically you have some sort of moral lesson that you're supposed to take away from it. Whereas with cryptids, I think that a lot of time it is a reaction to fear that there is something that's unexplained and they don't know how to categorize it. And so it turns into something else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, think of all the seas, you know, between mermaids and the Kraken and the just regular sea monsters and all that, but you know, being at sea was a very dangerous job, mm-hmm. you know, and it was like the more dangerous your job was or, or the less control you had on the outcomes, the more superstitious you are as a, a whole and the more of these fanciful stories you come up with. Sure. I think that's human nature. We like to control things. Um, that's just what we do. If we can't control it, we'll figure out a way or make up a story like you said. Yeah, We need some kind of touchstone or sense of balance in in life. Mm -hmm. So I know you have some stories that you're going to read to us, but I am curious, what is everybody's favorite fairy tale or folklore story? Oh, when I was young, my favorite favorite was Beauty and the Beast. Um, I can tolerate Disney's version because of the wonderful (laughs) animation on it. I loved the Hallmark Hall of Fame's version of it when they did a, a people version back in the 70s. But I think a variant of Beauty and the Beast that became my all-time favorite is East of the Sun, West of the Moon. Oh, very similar woman, higher, you know, gets farmed out, to has, has to marry a beast and he, he, a person with a curse. And then she has to, she messes up him getting the curse broken. So she goes on a, a pilgrimage or a, you know, journey to right the wrongs that she did. And it was very different twist of, oh, now we're in love. But, you know, <laughs> once the love is there and she finds out, you know, and but she messed up him getting the curse broken. So then she goes on a journey. So east of the sun, west of the moon was my favorite. I always really liked Rapunzel. I do love the Tangled Disney version. I think it's just absolutely adorable. Um, I want that hair. (laughs) (laughs) That hair would be too much work for me. Well, that actually kind of leads into my answer because it's not Rapunzel. But I think that 
more than a specific story, I have a trend that I like to follow with fairy tales, and that is the modern reinterpretations of classic fairy tales with feminist undertones. And that makes me super happy in the heart. Um, (laughs) But like one of them is one of my favorite fairy tales is a story from the Brothers Grimm called The Girl Without Hands. The base of the story is that there is a girl that is... uh, a good listener to her father. She does what he tells her to. And he gets himself in trouble and essentially sells her hand to the devil. And she doesn't want that. So she cuts off her own hand. So he can't take her hand. Um, And then eventually later on, you know, a higher power feels bad for her and gives her silver hands, depending on the story. But I really like that with the reinterpretation of she is taking the control out of that situation, that somebody wronged her and she is empowering herself, even if it comes with pain, to live a life she wants to live. Yeah. And surprising the brothers Grimm let it slip through. I know. <laughs> I know. Yep. When I was a kid, though, I loved Hansel and Gretel to the point that my mom would get angry whenever I would ask her to read it. <laughs> That's kind of why I like the Aberson and Moe stuff. The female characters are a little bit stronger than the Brothers Grimm just because it's Norwegian instead of German. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, same time period. And that's, you know. For modern, I love modern retelling, but you have to, I like going back to the source material to understand the stories and then the modern. Yes. I remember telling Little Red Riding Hood to a group of children that their only point of reference was the movie uh, Hoodwinked. Mm-hmm. And I've That's also. a very different story. Yeah. Yeah. And I've also been in with kids watching Shrek that they don't understand the references to the stories. And Shrek is brilliant mm-hmm. if you know the backstories. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, so to me, uh, there's a quote by Neil Gaiman, you know, I feel we're obligated to tell stories to children, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. And he also did a modern twist. He did Snow Glass Apples, which is a really interesting twist on uh, Snow White, but a beautiful one he did recently was the, not recently, uh, The Spindle and the Sleeper. Have you read that one? I have not. It's been on my to-read list, though. Okay, yeah, bump that up. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I um, prepped a story. It's called The Spindle, the Shuttle, and the Needle. And I was actually going to do it as storytelling instead of reading. Because sure. you really, there's a difference in your cadence and your voice. And that, plus, I tend to embellish the story. Mm-hmm. I do have my notes in front of me. I have the original Grimm's version in front of me just because there's parts of it I always forget when I'm telling. So I have my <laughs> cheat sheet here. So, but well, if you're willing to listen. Yeah. I am excited to listen. And as a fiber artist, that title makes me excited. <laughs> okay. So this is called The Spindle, Shuttle, and Needle, collected by Jacobs and William Grimm. Once upon a time, as all really good stories start... There was a young girl who was orphaned at a very young age, and she was sent to live with an aunt that lived at the side of a forest, and the town folks kind of thought her a little bit unusual, maybe a bit of a witch. We won't say that word too loud. But she was a kind and wonderful woman, and she raised the child as if it was her own and taught her all she needed to know to take care of herself. She taught her how to spin. She taught her how to weave and how to sew. 
knowing one day that she would pass away and the girl needed to make her way in the world. Being poor, she wouldn't have a dowry. She wouldn't be able to be married off. And she didn't trust marrying her off to someone. She wanted the girl to have agency of her own. So when the time came and the old woman knew she was laying dying, she called her to her and um, she gave her a blessing. She had a little box and in it was a needle, a spinning spool and a weaving shuttle and she goes these are my gifts to you your inheritance take these and as long as you have a pure heart and follow your true heart you will never want for anything and the old woman passed away and the girl grieved for days and then picked up her things continued living in the the cottage on the edge of the woods. And she became known for her weaving and her sewing. And, you know, she would spin the most, you know, thin, even spinnings. Um, if you know anything about how threads spun. Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, and she always managed to sell what she was made. You know, she'd make something and always find a buyer for it. And she always had enough to meet her needs with enough left over for charity and to give to others. So about this same time, um, on the other side of, you know, the, the kingdom, the prince was at that age where he needed to settle down and get married. And he was bored with all the women in court. He just, no. And he's like, I do not want to marry a rich woman. And his dad was like, you're not marrying a poor woman, you know. And, and this fight was going on. And finally, the mother just like had to stop. The, the king and the prince were going to alienate each other, and that would be bad for the kingdom. She goes, okay, you're going to go on a quest to find a wife, and you have to find the woman as both the richest and the poorest at the same time. So, you know, out on this big quest, and every town he'd go to, he would have the town elders, you know, show him the richest and the poorest, and, you know, nothing quite fit. It just, you know, so he kept going. Well, eventually he gets to our neck of the woods, so to speak, and the town people's like, well, you know, here, my daughter, she's the richest, and, you know, she shows up with all her finery, and he just kind of walks by. He's like, you've seen it a hundred times, and the poor one that wasn't there to be presented. It's like, well, she lives on the outskirts of town and we, yeah. So, you know, he makes the, the trek out there and he drives up and she's not at her gate to greet him. This is weird. Oh, <laughs> uh, so he gets off his horse and he goes and he looks through the window and there's this beautiful woman just sitting there, um, spinning thread. You know, she, you take the, the wool and you, tease it out and it's really a trick to get it even on she's spinning and she's spinning and she looks up and she sees there's a prince that's standing there so she looks back and she just keeps spinning now i can't tell you that her spinning was even that day it might have been a little lumpy but she doesn't give him the time it is she's like just focus on the spinning and then you know the prince just kind of is in shock and gets back on his horse and you know, he's thinking thoughts and she's, you know, and so she gets like, oh, it's kind of hot in here and goes up to her kitchen window and just kind of watches the procession of horses. And she can see the prince's white feather hat and she just stares at it until he disappears in the distance. And all she sees is the plume of his hat. It's like, oh, I got to get back to my spinning. And so she goes back 
And while she's spinning, she remembers an old chant that her, you know, adoptive mother had always said when spinning. And she started saying, spindle, spindle, go on out and bring my suitor to my house. And she kept kind of getting that rhythm. And all of a sudden, the spindle jumps out of her hand, goes spinning across the room, leaving a thread behind it, and spins on out the door. It's like, okay, that's never happened before. So she can't spin anymore, so she decides to, you know, start weaving. So she goes to her loom, and she's weaving, you know, you've got a shuttle that goes back and forth, and, you know, the lines go up and down, so you've got that in and out, up and down. And it's kind of very rhythmic, back and forth, back and forth. So she again, she remembers an old chant that she remembered from her adopted mother. And it was, shuttle, shuttle, weave so fine, let my suitor here to find. And it's like, okay, that's kind of weird. And all of a sudden, next thing she knows is the shuttle spits out of her hand and it's weaving back and forth and it goes outside her front door and it starts weaving her front walkway. And as it's weaving, there's these intricate flowers start growing off to the side and all of a sudden her garden is as rich and full as it's ever been and there's like bunnies are but and it's still the shuttle's going back and forth down her path up to her front gate and and she's like okay this is a really bizarre day i can't spin i can't work my shuttle she's at wits end she's got you know got to have her hands doing something so she goes and picks up her needle and tries to do some embroidery and her brain is just not on it. She's thinking about the prints. She's thinking about the weird stuff her shuttle and her spindle did and all this. But so again, she starts kind of chanting an old chant she remembers hearing when she was little. Needle, needle, sharp and fine. Clean up the house for this suitor of mine. And again, like before, her needle leaps out of her hand and starts sewing around the house. It sews bench covers and it's sewing the curtains and, you know, just that lacy, hardunger, very intricate kind of, you know, and she's just watching her house be redecorated by this magic needle. And she's just like, ah, you know, not knowing what's going on. Meanwhile, <laughs> down the road a bit, the spindle has finally caught up to the prince. And the spindle is, you know, it scares the horse. And, you know, he's like, what's the, you know, and he realizes that there's a thread coming out of the spindle. So being a curious prince that he is, he decides to follow it back to the house. And as he's getting closer and closer, he's like, well, he knows it's the cottage where that girl kind of snubbed him, but it doesn't quite look the way it did before. The garden is all full and there's fruit on the trees and, you know, ready for a bountiful harvest, which was not that time of the year. And the grass and the path, it was just this beautiful tapestry woven on the ground. And it's like, well, who can afford to have tapestry outside as a walking path and this is unusual and he gets up and he looks into the same window he looked in before only this time there's like drapes and you know wall coverings and and all this beautiful embroidery work and he's just like in shock and then you know and he makes eye contact with the woman and she makes eye contact with him and neither one of them have had a day like this before and he goes you're both the poorest and richest woman I've ever met. 
He goes, you've got to come home and meet my mother. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, without saying a word, she just hops up on the back of his horse and they ride off. And uh, eventually they do get married and, you know, eventually the old king and queen pass away and they become the king and queen. And the spindle, the shuttle and the needle were secured deep inside the vault as a national treasure. And that's the end of my story. I like it. That was delightful. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, read the original Brothers Grimm version. It's a lot less detail. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes. But, yeah, I kind of flush it out a little bit just because I get into it. And it's just, like, fun. And it is one of the more, you know, woman agency ones for the Brothers Grimm. It's not all, rescue me, rescue me. (laughs) (laughs) It was good. I liked it. Okay. So, Lori, do you think your fiber arts will ever lead you to your one true match? <sighs> I wish. Um, I do think that there is something to be said about both folklore and fiber arts, that they are both activities that connect you with the past. Mm-hmm. They are both things that you do that your ancestors also did, or even if it wasn't your ancestors, somebody in the past did Fiber arts specifically is a very feminine, historically speaking, feminine coded job. So by doing fiber arts and knitting, especially if you're using like old patterns or whatever, you're directly recreating something that somebody in the past has also made. And that connection is really cool for me, at least. Do you ever read um, Piecework magazine? I've read pieces of it, but not the whole thing. Yeah, that's a wonderful one. I think we have it in our digital collection, or I know we used to, but it's beautiful where they'll take historic pieces, give the history behind it, and then often offer a sample pattern. Uh, One issue was all about the history of indigo dye. One was they found uh, a shipwreck treasured where the tech, uh, textiles hadn't rotted away they were preserved so they found knitting patterns of old sea captain hats you know that you know they could f- trail where this came from because of the style of the knitting mm-hmm. in it from you know that it's like so yeah the history and the ties to the past and just getting your hands you know there's that connection and i love listening to audiobooks while i do my fiber arts my mm-hmm. knitting or my quilt work and so it's just fun that the the gift of the story how stories you know like you said hearth and home brought us together it was our social but it is our connection to our history and fairy tales folklore will never die we'll keep telling the stories we may change them as we tell them but we'll continue to tell them yeah i think that uh folklore and fairy tales kind of fell out of fashion for a, a short amount of time um because the publishing industry blew up especially in kids with kids materials. So it became a situation where like even growing up, we, I had plenty of access to children's books, but the amount of children's books being published today as compared to when I was a child is huge. So I think that there was a time period where people were like, Oh, this is a new shiny story. I'm going to go with the new one. And now we're seeing that it's swinging back and that even the new stories that we're hearing are based in old folklore. Well, look at Percy Jackson. I mean, it's, it's a resurgent of Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. You know, everything old is new again. Yeah. And the TV shows with like the Vikings, you have some of the Norse mythology coming back into play. 
Yeah, more than just the Avengers. Thor and Loki were lo- around long before that. Again, <laughs> Neil Gaiman influence on that one. Mm-hmm. And they had much more exciting stories than Marvel <laughs> stories do. <laughs> Yeah, there was even uh, directly related to fairy tales. There was once upon a time where all the kind of fairy tale tropes happened in yeah. a modern mm-hmm. day town. I think ever since Wicked came out, the, the retelling of the stories with twist endings or reimagining, I like that term, reimagining mm-hmm. of the old classic tales, a lot of these are in public domain. The stuff yeah. that the Brothers Grimm wrote, the copyright is long past. And so it's fun to find new modern twists. Now you can publish and copyright a new version of something, but that classic tale is in public domain. Yeah. You see it a lot, I think, in romance books, especially with the Hades and Persephone story. Like the lore graphic novel is just exploded on the internet. Um, And yeah, it's just a reimagining of a story with modern sensibilities. Yeah. I think it makes it more obtainable and approachable to a modern audience. But like I say, there's something about going back to, you know, reading the old versions of things just to, you get a peek into the culture and the world of the time period too. That's why I also like the different cultures and the different countries. Mm -hmm. I think it's really fascinating that we are able to watch these stories evolve in real time with these modern interpretations. Once it got written down, people like, okay, that, you know, it's locked in, you know, cut in granite stone, you know, it's like, well, that's not how the story's supposed to go. And I think we've gotten back to the oral version of you always tell it a little bit different every Mm -hmm. time you tell it. And I love that. And, you know, I like collecting Little Red Riding Hood variances and all the different, uh, the University of Minnesota actually did a study a number of years back. A couple students did collecting the cover art of all the different Little Red Riding Hood stories through the, the decades. Hmm. And they would collect it by decade and you could see where it went from cartoonish to almost abstract to the, the publishing industry started publishing, you know, the variances of, you know, different cult, cultures doing that same story. And it's just fascinating. And then not only did they do cover art, but they did the epitome of when red meets the wolf. That's the, you know, the turning point in the story and how different artists have interpreted that scene and just the amount of artwork inspired by that one quote unquote children's story. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just beautiful. I mean, a yeah. lot of art is inspired by the, it's all about the story. A picture tells a thousand words. You know, it's, I, we, life is stories. We, we, yep. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. That was Shakespeare, All the World's a Stage. (laughs) (laughs) That was a different episode that we just did. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Stacey, for joining us and having a beautiful conversation about folklore with us. Thank you for having me. Yes. If anybody has anything that they would like to add to this conversation or tell us their favorite folklores or fairy tales, feel free to email us at podcast at evpl.org. And we'll see you next time with... Maybe some more stories, maybe something new. Who knows? Uh, Check it out with EVPL. Bye. Bye. They're not going to hear you wait. No.